I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, I talk with Dr. Wendy Osefo. She's an award-winning researcher and professor at the Johns Hopkins University. In addition to Wendy's research on race, politics, and social justice, she's been a progressive political commentator seen on MSNBC, CNN, and even Fox News. We talk about the March for Our Lives and the successes of the movement driven by the students of Stillman Douglas High School. We also discuss the ways in which society and the media has failed to amplify the voices of young activists of color who have for years fought to curb gun violence and police violence in their communities. We also talk about the conservative and NRA attacks on these students and how the right is just generally losing their minds over the success of the Parkland students. So without further ado, here is Dr. Wendy Osefo. Wendy Osefo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to talk about March for Our Lives. That was a couple of weeks ago, and it was hugely successful by by most measures. I mean, there were nearly a thousand sister marches all over the world. And I think the numbers in D.C. topped that of the, the Women's March. And there were these two moments that were really memorable to me. The moment when Emma Gonzalez, she stood there in silence for six minutes to honor the victims of the shooting. Right. And then after that, there was Yolanda Renee King. She's the nine-year-old granddaughter of Dr. King, and she spoke to the crowd. So those were two moments for me that really stood out. But, you know, one of the things that I they couldn't help but notice was that their efforts at intersectionality were really on display. And, you know, leading up to the march, the students of Stoneman Douglas, you know, they've been really open and frank about their, about their own privilege. I mean, they met with students from Chicago and Washington to discuss what gun violence was like for them. So do you think these are good signs that this movement will be successful at, you know, being inclusive? I could say that we can definitely tip our hats to some extent right, to, to some of the intersectionality of this movement. But there's still a lot of work to be done. You mentioned Emma Gonzalez and standing there for how long it took the shooter to take the lives. And you mentioned the granddaughter of Dr. King and, you know, just the comments that she made. But for me, it was also the 12-year-old who stood there, the little brown girl um, who stood right. there. And she said, I stand here to represent all of the people who look like me, the Black girls, and men who look like me, but their voices are not elevated. So for me, that was the most poignant moment of the march. It really spoke to this whole notion of us looking at gun violence and it being brought to the forefront of our media. And now all of our, you know, whether you look at a blog or a newspaper, this is what everyone is talking about. But I think we will be remiss if we don't underscore the fact that gun violence has been happening in a lot of black and brown communities for years. And people have marched for this, but they have not received the same amount of media attention. Just to put into context, we can always say, well, this was a mass shooter. I I agree with that. What happened at Stoneman Douglas was absolutely horrifying. We've seen mass shootings you know, in different places like Pulse Nightclub. We've seen them in Las Vegas. But between the start of the new year to the time that there was a shooting at Stoneman Douglas, what we saw was over 178 Chicago people, people who live in Chicago have died from gun violence. Right. So again, it cuts both ways, right? And we just need to make sure that that narrative is also brought to the forefront as well. Right. And, and you know, and to their credit, the kids from um, Parkland have brought to our attention 
that students of color, people of color, Mm -hmm. their classmates specifically haven't gotten the media attention that they have. I mean, David Hogg in an interview said that, you know, the students at his school hadn't been given the same amount of media attention, Mm -hmm. right? So it sounds like the media is to blame in this case, Mm -hmm. right? Because they shape these narratives. Absolutely. I think the media is to blame, but if we solely put it on the media, we will take away the amount of responsibility that our society as a whole has. The media is not some esoteric thing that is known and understood only by a few people. The media are everyday people like you and I. They're people who have husbands, who have wives, who who, who are single, who have dogs, who have cats. They're just like you and I. They just have a different job than we do. What is the common thread between every member of the media? Because we're not just talking about one particular media outlet. We're just talking about in general, the media has not given, you know, students of color from Stoneman Douglas, the same platform that they have given to the white students. But the common thread is the fact that they're all a member of this society. And racism and and just to be quite honest with you, racism is the biggest sin in this country and we have yet to address it. And one thing that I have seen and what research has shown, whether you look at the ways in which doctors respond to students, uh, not necessarily students, but people of color when they're in the hospital or the mortality rate for women of color. One thing that is true that it may be hard to hear is that white pain is seen differently than black pain. When you see black pain, you think, oh, well, you know, you guys are just killing each other anyway in Chicago and then Baltimore. So, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's this sense of our community comes together to galvanize when you have middle class white children who are crying on TV. We have seen time and time again when we have as a society ignored Black people who have come on TV and have marched and have cried. I mean, the whole premise of uh, Black Lives Matter started because a young Black boy was killed. And that was Trayvon Martin. So we have to understand that, you know, yes, we can put the blame on the media if we want to, but it's not the media's fault. It's actually the way in which our society operates. Right. You know, the thing that bothers me, um, the conflation of the criticism of the media and our society and how we view crimes against, you know, Mm -hmm. Black children and Black people, and to conflate that to then be criticism of this Parkland movement or the March for Our Lives movement. Mm -hmm. Both things can be true. You can be, you can be in admiration of the kids from Parkland. Mm-hmm. And you can also be critical. So that really that really bothers me when people conflate those two. Absolutely. It's not binary decision either. It's not one or the other, right? Right, so exactly. This is something really interesting happened actually when when the March for Lives movement really started to pick up momentum. You know, celebrities started to notice and you know they started posting about the movement on social media, you know, in solidarity with the students. Right. And you know, Oprah herself, she donated half a million dollars, I think, to March for Our Lives. Yeah. And and I believe that donation was announced on social media. Following that, there was a response to that donation from Charlene Carruthers. And Charlene Carruthers is the founder of an organization titled Black Youth Project 100. They're this organization that was founded in 2013. Mm-hmm. And they're a group of young Black activists who are fighting for social justice. And, and Charlene's response essentially was, you know, with all due respect, it's great that the movement's getting all of this attention and it's getting these big donations. But she wrote that she was a bit hurt that, you know, after years of protesting, they hadn't received the same level of public support. And for me, I mean, I'm guilty as well. I had no knowledge of this group until I read about this exchange from Charlene Carruthers. I mean, I think it's a fair criticism. Absolutely. Again, I, you know, I, I go back to the ways in which our society is formed. And if you're listening to this, I, 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 the takeaway is not to say, oh, 
this is because white people think this way. No. And you bringing up Oprah is is really important that we underscore that. It's not just about races, different races, looking at Black people and saying, oh, we don't experience your pain. You also have Black people themselves who are conditioned. And that's why I say it's a society issue, are conditioned that this is the norm. The norm in Black communities is that of pain, is that of violence, is that of despair. So when it happens time and time again, we don't raise our eyebrows to say, why is this happening? Because it becomes the norm or we have been conditioned to believe that it is the norm. So I I just believe that, you know, right now we live in a society that I call it a sense of hyperactivism, but they're social media activists. When things run like wildfire on social media, people will either retweet or post a hashtag and they feel like they've done their part. When it came to Parkland, these students were able to, for their credit, galvanize the attention of America. And what I thought was really interesting was someone said, you know, when we saw the shooting in Newtown, the same impact People did not feel that impact because unfortunately the students were too young. Right. The difference here is Stoneman Douglas. These kids, the ones who lived, saw their friends die and they are the social media generation. Again, if we look at Columbine, that was not the social media generation. That was like, you know, my so-called life, right. like though that generation, right? They weren't into social media yet, the MTV generation. But this generation, everything for them is social media. So they used it to galvanize support. And that is what the difference is. Who is to say if, you know, there's a shooting at a predominantly black high school that the response wouldn't be the same? We have not witnessed that. Right. But what we have seen is that there have been shootings in predominantly black communities. And how do we respond to that? And what does that look like? And if I could just say something real quick, when they were marching, it wasn't just about marching for people who are victims of mass shootings. They were marching to their credit for anyone who's been a victim of gun violence. And that's what's so important right. is anyone who has been a victim of gun violence, you should support this cause. And I think that that's what brought people together to say, okay, if you have this platform and if you consider yourself an ally or an accomplice rather, then since you have the eyes of the world on you, can we as Black students, can we as mothers who have lost, you know, children fall under your umbrella because the world is watching you? Right, right. You know, you bring up a really excellent point about, you know, it's almost like a perfect storm, mm. right? Um, you know, when and Sandy Hook happened, the kids are just mm. too, they were just too young, right? The survivors were just too young to become activists. And, you know, we weren't really at the height of this kind of social media time that we're in right now. And then, of mm. course, Columbine, you know, the cell phones were, it, it, were there even cell phones? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> And, you know, now you're right. This is the perfect time. It's the perfect storm. And hopefully the movement will take along all of those people who've right. been invisible, right. you know, before, before them, you know, guns kill 10 times more black children than they do white children each year. Mm -hmm. Right. There was a CDC um, report that came out. I think it was last, last summer. And, you know, that highlighted that Absolutely. difference. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And what I found so interesting, this whole notion of gun violence, is just the ways in which our society was receptive to that march, right? So, you know, I was one of the, the, the people when the Women's March happened, I was so happy about the Women's March. You know, at that time we had an incoming president, just some of the disparaging things that were said by the president at the time. But my first thought was, wow, look at all of these people in their pink hats coming out in solidarity for this cause. I wish 
that all these people came out when Trayvon Martin was killed. I wish that all these people came out when issues are affecting low-income communities. And I just believe that for some people, that is the same thought in which they are having is, wow, this is amazing. And we just wish that when it comes to things that happen in our communities, that they can also come out and support us the same way in which we support them. One of the most beautiful images was Paul McCartney was marching and it just crystallized how this march was not just for a mass shooting, but was for gun violence. And he was marching. And when they said, who are you marching for? He said, John Lennon, you know, a beetle was killed from a gun, from a man with a gun, and he killed him. And so you have people from all sides of the spectrum who are really just coming together for this cause. And I just hope that the social media generation and the buzz around it is able to elevate the conversation beyond being what I call social media activists for real policy change. You know, but all of our big movements lately, including the Me Too movement, have excluded marginalized groups, have excluded people of color. And, you know, and and I'm hoping that the social media age that we're in and we'll, we'll help kind of elevate these voices more. You know, I recently did an episode with author Bernice Young. She wrote a book. It's titled In a Day's Work. And the book highlights the experiences of women in the service industry who are who have been victims of sexual violence. And many of these women are women of color and many are undocumented. And because of their status, they often have little recourse, you know, for justice. And their voices in particular were not initially heard in relation to the to the Me Too movement. Uh, there's this whole conversation of why the whole citizenship question on the census matters. And the whole notion of that is, is the census is basically something in which we are able to measure what resources are needed for all people in this country. When you have a citizenship question, it excludes those individuals who are not citizens because they feel as though filling this out, they 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 may be discovered or, you know, um, you know, they, their voices just can't be heard. And so when we think about the Me Too movement, when we think about all of the movements and the ways in which immigrants and people from marginalized groups are not included in here, what that simply means is that these resources and the policy changes will only impact and effectuate change in the communities for those people who are present. Right. So it's really important to make sure that all voices are present and everyone has a seat at the table, because just because you are not from an affluent community or just because you're not a U.S. citizen does not mean that you deserve to not receive resources because automatically people think, oh, if you're not a U.S. citizen, then you're an illegal. That's not true. There's people who are green card holders. There's always that gray area and they should also receive resources as well. So it's just important to make sure that in all of the conversations we're having and all the movements we're having, we are inclusive of all communities. Speaking of inclusiveness, um, something that isn't talked about often, except in the context of the criticism that she received, Emma Gonzalez. So, I mean, I think she's Mm -hmm. openly bisexual. And, you know, someone made this disparaging remark on social media about her, which I Mm -hmm. which I won't repeat. But I mean, I think that that also speaks to the fact that, you know, we are so receptive to this movement having the face Mm -hmm. of someone who's bisexual. But, you know, what what you would expect the Mm -hmm. media to pick up Mm -hmm. as their spokesperson. You you bring up a great point. Right. And, And I feel as though. Those individuals who do attack this whole movement by the Stoneman Douglas students, I feel like there's so many layers to it and why they're attacking it. You know, they're attacking it not only because it goes against the NRA, 
They're also attacking it because some people feel as though these children should not be speaking, air quotes, children, right? And then they're also attacking it because of the faces which are at the forefront of the movement. So it's so many layers. So that's so interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, they're, they're kind of losing it, the right? They're, they're, yeah. <laughs> I want to use an expletive. They're losing their, you know, me too. But, <laughs> but, Absolutely. Um, talk a bit about school security. Mm. So recently, some of the, the Black students at Stillman Douglas gave a press conference during which they expressed their concern over the fact that, you know, these increased security measures, you know, some of the things that are being proposed mm. would put the Black students there at greater risk. And of course, that includes a mm. lot of the more absurd suggestions like, you know, arming teachers mm. or you know, these class resource officers. You know, they're all moving in the direction of militarizing the schools, which isn't good for the students. And it's especially not good for students of color and especially for black students. As a parent, I, you know, I frankly find the idea terrifying. And with a pervasiveness of, you know, implicit bias, I mean, it's just a powder keg. And I think I know what your answer is going to be. But but do you think that that's a, a rational concern? Oh, my goodness. They would they would harm not only black students, but they would continue to rip apart at the fiber of black and brown communities. Why I say that is because if you just look at the stats, we know that when it comes to the measures, punitive measures that are employed within the K through 12 landscape, we have empirical data that shows that black and brown students are punished more severely than their white counterparts. That is just a fact. That's not an assumption. That is a fact. So if that is the case, that means that Black students are basically going to every day potentially put their lives on the line just to go to school for a teacher who's sitting at the other end of a gun. And all that teacher has to say, as as recent events have shown us, is that the teacher fear for their life. And that is it. So why would we arm teachers, one, not even just looking at the black and brown issue, but why would we arm teachers when so much could go wrong, right? But two, it would it would nefariously impact black and brown students because these students who are already at the crosshairs of administration, of their teachers, of their principals, will now physically be at the crosshairs when the gun is in the room. And that is not needed. We do not need to continue to weaponize, in a sense, teachers for that weapon to only be used in a harsher manner on students of color. And I say this from a personal space as well as a professional space. I am an educator by trade. You know, I'm a university professor, so I, I know what that looks like. But on the other end of this, I'm a mom of two young black boys. And so every day I try to ensure that their outcomes in schools are equitable to their white counterparts. And for the most part of their life, they have been in schools where they are the only, if not one or two black kids, not just boys, black kids in their class. So I am well aware of what that looks like. And I'm also well aware of the statistics that show that black and brown kids, as soon as they enter our K-12 educational system, a lot of them fall into what is called the, the school to prison pipeline. So we cannot arm teachers until we address the bias that currently exists within our K-12 through education. 
system. But even if we don't go that far, if we don't go as far as talking about arming teachers, which you know, I think all of those measures have failed yeah. at this point, right? I mean, because they're just right. absurd. But if, if we're just talking about greater security, just the greater security in schools is, is problematic for black, yeah. black yeah. and brown students. So you talked about the statistics about, you know, brown children, black and brown children being expelled and suspended at greater rates. So, you know, you have more mm-hmm. officers in these schools and you can imagine, you know, being expelled or being sent to the principal's office turns into Absolutely. being handcuffed, right? Mm-hmm. And sent to the principal's office, right? Or being mm-hmm. tossed out of a chair or, you know, know, being, you know, handled Mm -hmm. roughly by a police officer. So, you know, even if you don't have guns in the picture, just having a greater amount of security around children Mm -hmm. who are black and brown, it, you know, creates huge problems, you know, just taking guns out of the picture. Absolutely. Absolutely. It does create huge problems because it turns into us militarizing our educational system. And when you militarize the educational system, the same ways in which you saw when the the federal government militarized the police when you had riots in Ferguson or Baltimore, you see the impact on communities of color. The same thing will happen when you militarize school officers that are dealing with black and brown kids. Again, our society sees blackness as a threat. When the mere color of your skin can be used or perceived to be a weapon. We right now are in the midst of what's going on in Sacramento with Stefan Clark, only for him to be shot 20 times. That same situation can easily occur in any school. And that is not even with a gun present for a teacher. That is just a security officer. And, and, and the saddest part about those stories is after they say what they thought, it does not bring back that person. It's not like, oh, you know what? I thought you had a gun, but you only had a cell phone. So now you can rise back up and you can live now. It doesn't matter. The, the perception of fear. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about this uneven playing field for black and brown students is that there is always a perception of fear. And if I could take this a step further, why I believe there's a perception of fear goes back to our original conversation about the ways in which society views people of color. People don't fear black and brown people because they wake up, you know, they're two years old and they fear black and brown people. It's because of the imagery we see on TV. It's because we felt to humanize black and brown people. And we don't see black and brown people in that manner. And again, you know, you know, one of my greatest moments of the Obama administration was when he said, if I had a son, he will look like Trayvon, responding to Trayvon Martin. And he got so much heat from the right for making that comment. But what Obama did in that moment was he humanized a black boy to say he is not an animal. He could have been my child. And that was the first time in the history of this country that we saw the greatest leader in the world, the most powerful person in the world, humanize a black boy in that way. And that's what needs to be done in our society. So police officers or school resource officers don't look at black and brown kids as a threat. There needs to be a level of training and humanizing that goes on. And right now that is missing. So until we can implement that, we need to remove all forms of extra security because it's only going to nefariously impact students of color. Yeah, that was a really beautiful moment with Obama. Um, Also, 
you know, after the Charleston shooting, you know, saying um, Amazing Grace yeah. at, the, at the at the service. Absolutely. That was another moment. And, and I feel like those are so far away from us now. It feels like another lifetime. Like, will we ever experience beauty like that again no. in our government? <laughs> that reminds me, that kind of um, brings me to my next topic about the, the mm. NRA. So recently, the NRA put out some videos and their spokesperson, Colleen Noir, I don't know if you, you're familiar yeah. with this person. Yeah, yes. You know, he put out some videos criticizing the Parkland students. And I think he also did an interview with, with Killer Mike. Mm-hmm. How are they, these two people who are being spokespeople for the NRA, are they advocating for more guns in communities of color? If we can't be protected when we hold cell phones in our own backyards, mm-hmm. who's going to protect us? When we have guns, first of all, what is Colleen Noir doing as a spokesperson for the NRA? Sorry, I did not mean that to be a punchline. But I'm serious. Like, what is his aim? What is their aim? You know, so okay, so this is two layers. I, I want to believe that he truly believes what he's saying. He's a staunch believer of the Second Amendment, but you know, I have problems with the Second Amendment because it basically says that we as a country have the right to retain a well a well armed yeah. militia. So that's the Second Amendment. Clearly not what's happening today. But I do not know why he's a spokesperson for the NRA, but I could tell you this. Now, Killer Mike is an outlier situation. I don't know if he was not aware of the contentious relationship between the NRA and black and brown communities, especially since the NRA did not speak up when Philando Castile had a license, but he was still gunned down by the police. So I have a big issue with the NRA when it comes to that. But what I will say, as someone who frequents conservative networks, what conservative networks love the most outside of people who spit their agenda are people of color who spit their agenda. They love them and they revere them as if they were the second coming. They hold them up and they prompt them up simply to say, oh no, look at this person who is from a black community or brown community and they don't feel the way that the left says that black and brown people feel. They don't have a platform to me. Like I, I, Killer Mike is, is again, I don't know what happened because before he's spoken out against injustices and his, his theories have aligned with some of what I call the principles of the Black Lives Matter movement. But Colin, I believe he is just a prop that is being used by the NRA to basically say this person can move with our agenda because he does not look like what you think of when you think of a card carrying member for the NRA. I don't dig too much into his background and his his political leanings, but what I do know is that when you listen to his rhetoric, there are a lot of talking points straight out of the NRA playbook. Right. So I question whether these are his true ideologies or if he's just, again, being propped up for the mere reason to say a person of color is speaking on our behalf. Right. Like both of those scenarios are, are troubling. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I fear I, and I fear it's the latter. Right. I mm. mean, just being you know cynical, I think it's the latter. Right. You know, he is a spokesperson. That's a job to him. And but, but I can't get inside his brain. I don't know what's actually happening. Um, but and I think you're right about Killer Mike. I think that there was a bit of naivete on, on, on his mm-hmm. part in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think he didn't actually. And he apologized. He apologized he publicly for you know not knowing how he was going to be used. Um, but, you know, is it Colin or Coleon? I, I've heard it called. I've heard it said, you know, two different ways, but we can say Coleon to make him sound sophisticated. Well, it's, it's noir, so it's French, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So let's just say Colignon. <laughs> Noir. Um, and so I kind of understand what you're getting at with, let's say, Fox News, for instance, or conservative media outlets having Black people on their shows to say that here, you know, we aren't who you mm-hmm. think we are. I still don't really understand what the goal of that is, right? Right. And, and, on, a, and on top of that, and I, I just don't understand what that is. <laughs> I've never quite understood that. But on top of that, the NRA... Even more so, and I'm pretty sure that their base does not want to arm more black people. Absolutely. So I am, tr- I am just truly perplexed by this. I, I continue to be perplexed by it every day, and, and and that's not to say that black people are monolith or that we all think the same, we all act the same, we all believe in the same things. No, we have different ways in which we think. Absolutely. But I, I can sit here and say that. Again, having been a person on these conservative networks, it's almost like a a white rhino when you see a person of color who is right-leaning and they just love for them to spew this agenda. And as you rightfully said, the NRA did not come to the defense of Philando Castile. There's this running joke that says, if you want the government to repeal the Second Amendment, Tomorrow, let every person in Chicago, Baltimore, and Detroit go apply for a license and you will see a difference in the shift. And it's, yeah. and it's true. It's, it's, it's very true. But, you know, again, the NRA continues to spew this rhetoric, but we all know exactly what it is they're doing here. Right. And you're right. Um, African-Americans, we are in a monolith. And I think there's something like 20% or 19% of African-Americans, you know, have a gun. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's one thing to be in support of the Second Amendment and we can argue as to whether the the Second Amendment and its original purpose mm-hmm. has been skewed or not. I, I personally believe that it has been skewed right, I agree. to support the NRA. But, you know, that that's a that's a different episode. But let's just say you are a, an African-American or a black person and you you have a gun and you believe in having a gun based on what you believe mm-hmm. the Second Amendment means. That still does not mean that you need to support the NRA, Absolutely. right? You can just own a gun. Absolutely. And then there's also this link with the NRA and the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. And I think this happened last year. There was this NRA TV ad that showed Black Lives Matter protests. And it was a really controversial ad. Mm-hmm. And it basically, at the end, it called for the viewers to, to rise up, you know, <laughs> against the resistance yeah. and rise up against the. And, you know, that was that was actually quite a dangerous it ad. It is. It's a threat. And, and it's a way to throw gas on the fire. These people know exactly what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They're trying to gaslight the situation. They're trying to turn this into a war almost, right? And I don't know if maybe I was just too young and now I'm just older, but I don't remember this sense of division in America years ago. I always knew we had our issues, but right now it's getting to the point of people can't even express their difference in opinions without it almost coming, not necessarily to blows, but I mean, it's just coming to this boiler point where I'm scared of what is going to happen because if you boil something for so long, it's going to explode. And that whole campaign that said that you should rise up speaks exactly to these counter marches that we see. For instance, Charlottesville. Yeah. That was a yeah. counter march. What happened when we lost someone in Charlottesville, Heather Hayer, the white supremacists decided that they were going to do a march 
And then there was a counter march and then all of this stuff happened, right? So that's the whole explosion I'm talking about. And we just need to be very mindful of what it is that the media is feeding us and what it is that our various outlets, whether you subscribe to the NRA or not, or if you subscribe to Young Turks or not, I'm not saying that one is right or necessarily one is wrong. But what I am saying is you can listen to the news, but a lot of people are taking in this information and spewing it out in a hateful manner. And that's why it's becoming very dangerous. Right. You know, and I fear that Heather Hare, that that incident, I I fear that, you know, that that something even worse will happen in the future. Right. It just seems to be escalating and and getting, you know, more and more hateful. So just going back to school safety and the Parkland Parkland shooting, in your opinion, what is the best way to protect kids generally without putting students of color at risk? So the best way for us to protect not just our students, but the best way for us to protect our society is we need to reevaluate policies for assault rifles and assault weapons. That is one of the biggest issues we are facing as a country. I will go ahead and say it. I do not believe an individual should own an assault weapon. Assault weapons are not used for hunting. They're not used for any other purpose but to kill. And until we as a society realize the common thread, whether in Las Vegas, in the Pulse nightclub, in Parkland, is an assault weapon. And we have to start addressing that issue because that's not just going to protect us when we're in school. It's going to protect us if we're at a music festival like those individuals in Las Vegas. It's going to protect us if we're at a nightclub like the individuals at Pulse. It's going to protect us if you are in San Bernardino like the people who killed countless people there. So we have to be mindful. And this has nothing to do with whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you are a member of the NRA or whether you're not, whether you believe in the Second Amendment, whether you believe it should be repealed. This has to do with us propelling ourselves forward as a civil society and making sure that our lives continue to be protected and not some crazy person with an assault rifle can take it away at the blink of, of, of an eye. That makes no sense. So before we even go down to the nitty gritty and talk about safety in schools, let's talk about safety in the society because that's going to trickle down. And that's what really matters is those type of policy changes that we need. Well, Wendy Osefo, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a true pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. 